chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, as we talk about the Lord's table. Uh, while you're turning, let me give you just a couple of announcements you need to know about. January is a busy month as we turn the page on the brand new year. Next Sunday, we have Baby Dedication Sunday. And if you have never been a part of Baby Dedication or don't know what that's about or uh, would like more information about maybe possibly dedicating your child to the Lord, that'll be next Sunday. Uh, you can see one of us in the lobby right after the service. Be happy to give you information uh, about that. Already have several that are registered. Uh, to do that and so we're looking forward to that as a part of our service next Sunday and then the following Sunday man don't miss Vision Sunday uh, two weeks away two Sundays from now January the 14th Vision Sunday will outline our entire theme for the year and uh, how we're going to do that and what that looks like for our church family uh, so that's on the 14th, and then on the 21st, January Jumpstart. Uh, I'm excited about January Jumpstart this year just because, for the first time, our speaker for January Jumpstart is actually going to be here for a Sunday morning service. And so Pastor Scott Toole from uh, Rosedale Baptist Church, Baltimore, Maryland, will be with us that Sunday morning, three weeks from now. January Jumpstart will kickstart on Sunday morning, January the 21st, and go Sunday morning, Sunday night at 6 o'clock, and then also on Monday. Monday evening at 6.30, and Pastor Tool will be talking about uh, following the Lord in our homes, in our marriage, and if you're raising children or you're raising grandchildren. Uh, all of those topics will be discussed January Jumpstart, so don't miss that. I hope that you'll get some cards, invite some folks to be with you who may not have a church home, or maybe somebody who wants to uh, be here for Sunday night, Wednesday night, if they don't, or Sunday night, Monday night, excuse me, uh, that does not have a church service uh, that they attend, uh, but cards are in the lobby. You can get those on the way out. 1 Corinthians 11, have you ever seen a sign that read, All Sales Final? All sales final. Doesn't something about that saying or that phrase just kind of strike fear? Uh, you know, of uh, what that represents, what that means. My favorite store to shop at, uh, there is a clearance center in North Carolina. And when you walk in the door, big, bright red letters, all sales final. And so when we think about that saying or that phrase, it implies several things. But the biggest thing is it causes me to inspect what I am purchasing, what I'm looking at. It causes me to inspect it knowing that there is a major consequence if I don't. You ever bought something and maybe got home and there was a massive hole or maybe a rip or a tear or a big long thread that was pulling on it that you didn't see when you were in the store? Uh, but it's too late. All sales final. There is a consequence to what we had just seen, and now we have to live with the consequence. Well, when we come to the Lord's table, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the inspection for making sure that what we see today, we can live with the consequence. Whatever that consequence is, we are well ready to accept that consequence and ready to receive it. So we understand that there is a consequence to if we come to the Lord's table, if we're not prepared, we're not doing anything, there is a consequence. And we have to be willing to accept that consequence. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, read a couple of verses for context and begin in verse number 23. 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 23. Paul says, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. The same night, 
Uh, we know about that. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the same night he took bread, and we see in the next few verses, he talks about this historical context, but also not just the historical, but how it applies to me scripturally. When he says, this is my body broken for you, this is the blood that was shed for you, this do in remembrance of me. So let's talk about this morning the Lord's table and what that represents. So let's pray and then we'll dive into the text. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it applies to us even today. Though thousands of years old, the, the word of God still has an impact in our lives. And Lord, I ask that you please use your word to impact us and do a great work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down number one, the history that's mentioned, the history. Corinth was a fractured community. All kinds of problems. They were doing everything that Paul was telling them. On the outside, this looked like a healthy church. It looked like they were serving, they were doing, they were doing all these right things, but they did not have any change on their lives. They were checking all the boxes. They were doing the right things. They were serving. They were living. They were doing all of these things that we would look and say, man, what a great church. But on the inside, there were major problems. And when I say on the inside, I'm not just talking about when they came inside the walls. I'm talking about when they came inside their heart. There were major issues with this church. They were coming to church, partaking of all the things of the church, serving, doing all the right things. But they were not allowing the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross to change them. And we see a part of that in verse number 23 when Paul references the dinner. The dinner. He says, I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so the way that we tell that someone has been changed by the gospel is that we see an evident change in their lives. The process is called sanctification. We know that when we get saved, that moment where we recognize that we're a sinner and we need a Savior and we call out to Jesus for salvation, that process is called justification. Just as if I never sinned. We're declared righteous in the sight of God. But then the process that takes place over the rest of our lives is called sanctification. Sanctification. Now here's the thing about sanctification. It looks different for everybody. We might say, man, I receive Christ on Sunday and Monday I go to work and I want to tell all my friends about it. I want to tell them what Jesus has done for me. And uh, There's an immediate change in my heart where, man, I just can't live the same way. My vocabulary changes and uh, the things that I used to do, I feel uncomfortable now doing them. And there's a radical metamorphosis that takes place instantaneously. And I cannot help but be different. But for other people, that process might take years. Where someone on the outside looking would maybe even question was, did that person ever change at all? Was there ever any real transformation that took place? Because I just don't see anything different. We think about that process that takes place, sanctification. The key is knowing personally that something has changed within you. See, we're not the Holy Spirit. I know sometimes we like to play the Holy Spirit. But we're not the Holy Spirit. I can't tell if someone is truly saved or not. Jesus told the disciples, by their fruits ye shall know them. What they do on the outside is an indicator of what's on the inside. But it's not always a true 
picture of what's on the inside. Not always the case. We see people who have been saved for years, and maybe it takes them years to realize, I want to take that first step of believer's baptism. Some people say, man, as soon as, just like Acts chapter number 22, or Acts chapter 2, they that gladly received his word were baptized. It's immediate, but for some, it's not. Sanctification is a process that's different for everyone. And Paul criticized this church for focusing on doing rather than being in Christ. And that is the difference. He started the chapter in chapter number 11 in verse 1. He said, be followers of me even as I am of Christ. See, the focus of the Christian life should be to follow Jesus wherever he leads. That's our focus. Wherever he leads me, that's where I want to go. I'm going to follow him no matter what. And that might not always make sense. That might look different for everybody. That might not make sense to your friends or your family or your co-workers. Why in the world would you do that? But we're following him. Paul took them back to the beginning, to that very first last supper. That last time they would be together. That first night in a dark lit room where Jesus would remind them that he was getting ready to leave them. And he would remind them that all of these things that were getting ready to transpire. But remember, that night, it was that same night when everything changed amongst the disciples. One of those guys would betray Jesus. One of them would deny him. All of them would run from him. But isn't it amazing that just like that night and those disciples, the ups and downs they had, isn't it amazing that we experience ups and downs in our Christian life as well? Isn't it amazing that there are times we feel like we make decisions where we deny Jesus? Where there are times in our life where we betray Jesus. Where we look at what Jesus has done for us and the sacrifice that he paid on our behalf. And we don't even acknowledge that in our lives. There's going to be ups and downs for you too. Ups and downs in your life. Whether you've been saved five minutes or 50 years. We all struggle. But what's amazing about these men is that while each of them struggled in their faith. All of them. Were willing to die for it. They all struggled with their faith. But at the end of their lives, all of them were willing to die for it. So the question this morning is, how, is, how important is your faith? How important is your faith in your life? Are you willing to die for it? I say, Pastor, that's a big question. Well, let's make it a little easier this morning. Are you willing to put yourself to death for your faith? Say, Pastor, that's, that's, I don't know if you should ask that question. That's kind of personal. But are you willing to put, not yourself, but two words, your self, your flesh, your desires, your dreams, are you willing to sacrifice them for the purpose of following Jesus? For the purpose of putting Him first in your life? Are you willing to sacrifice what you want to do for what He wants you to do? See, the dinner is that night, but then he talks about the distinction in verse 24 and 25. The dinner was just an opportunity for Jesus to rally the troops and emphasize what was getting ready to take place. He'd already told him about his death. Mark chapter number 8, verse 31 will be in this passage next Sunday. Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. 
They didn't understand. They even rebuked him. Peter said, stop talking like that. Don't, don't say things like that, Jesus. That's not right. But even in that, Jesus was supposed to be one, the one who brought restoration to the masses. He was supposed to be the one that provided peace for their region to get them away from Rome's grip on their lives. And he did all those things, just not the way that they thought that he would. See, Jesus doesn't work according to our standard, according to our expectation. He works according to what's best for us. Jesus focused on the spiritual needs first, not the physical need first. And Paul talked about in verse number 24, the broken body and the blood that was shed. In verse 24, when he had given thanks, he break it. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Verse 25, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. This is not uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation that is taught in some churches. The belief that the bread and cup actually become the body and blood of Jesus. We're partaking with him in his sufferings. That's not that. This is not uh, the doctrine of consubstantiation. The belief that the true body and blood of Jesus are in, they're under the bread and cup on the table. When Jesus said, this is my body, he's giving us a picture. He is giving us a symbol. He's showing us what he is getting ready to do. It's symbolic. And when we eat the bread, we drink the cup, we're reminded of the suffering that he endured for us. When it says in verse 24, broken for you. For you, on our behalf, he did that for us. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus did that for us. For us. And we know that because the very next verse, in verse number 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Not his own. He didn't have any. He was wounded for us. He was bruised for us. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. But here's the great part. And with his stripes, we are healed. We are healed. He did that for us. But how many times? Do we thank him for suffering for us? How many times do we come to an altar or we go to our prayer closet or we have our time of prayer and meditation with the Lord and we don't even think about thanking him for what he did for us? We think about, Lord, please bless my job this week and please bless my kids and bless my wife and bless my spouse and bless my home and all these different things and yet we neglect the greatest gift that's ever been given to mankind. Say, so, Pastor, we talked last week that the greatest gift was Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus didn't come to live. He came to die. He was born to die. The song, Born to Die Upon Calvary. He came with a purpose in mind, and that purpose was redemption. But he had to die to do it. We see the dinner. We see the distinction, what those things represent. And then number three, we see the display in verse 26. It says, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. That's why we partake in communion. 
It's, it's a showing of the suffering that was taken on our behalf. We're not told how often we're supposed to partake. We're just told to remember when we do partake. Some churches do it every week. Some churches do it once a year. Some churches do it monthly, quarterly, whatever. There's no right or wrong. It's just so significant that we're supposed to set aside time to partake in what he did for us. To be constantly reminded of his death on our behalf. And we're supposed to do that until he comes. Till he comes. Celebrating his death until he returns in glory. Until we see him. And think about this. The, our lives, hardships that we endure, will only make sense when we're in his presence. When I'm with him, it reminds me. When I spend time with him, it reminds me that I'm not alone. and That I can endure. That I can keep going. That I can uh, get, get through whatever it is that I'm facing. Whatever hardship I'm in front of right now. I know that I can face it because I'm with him. But think about on that day and when he comes and we're in his presence then. We'll know that everything that I faced in life, man, I didn't even realize the impact that his presence had. Him being with me, knowing that I'm not alone, knowing that I can endure. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We're going to look back one day and compare and say, man, I don't even know why I was bothered. Look at all the glory that God got out of my life and God saw, brought to himself because of the hardship, the suffering that I went through. See, our lives are supposed to be lived with his glory in mind. But we also have to remember that how we respond in this life will determine how much glory he receives from our lives. If I sit and I moan and I bellyache and I complain about every bump in the road that comes along, he's not getting much glory. But when I step back and say, you know, God, I don't understand this. I don't even like this. But I know that you have a purpose and a plan and somehow, some way, you're going to receive glory out of this. People step back and say, well, man, his world's on fire and he's not complaining. I wonder what the difference is. And in walks Jesus. He is the difference. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting or lack of nothing. You might say, well, pastor, my life is just not unfolding the way I planned it. But is it going the way that he planned it? Your life might be, not be according to your design, but is it according to His design? Because if you're living, it's according to His design. He has a purpose and a plan. And He is trying to live out that purpose and plan through you. The history. He tries to give them a great history lesson. And then He talks about the holiness. Verse 27 through 29. Paul comes to the seriousness of this supper. He talks about the significance. They were belittling the coming together. They had turned, if you read the preceding verses to verse 23, they had turned this opportunity as a glorified potluck supper. And to make matters worse, they weren't even inviting everybody to the dinner. They were telling some people, hey, we don't even want you to come. Stay at home. And Paul was disgusted at this. He said, I'm, there's some of these things that are being told to me in verse 22. He said, I partly believe it. 
Because I know some of you jokers. I know how you respond. I know how you behave. And this is wrong. And he tries to set the record straight. And in so, we see two things. Number one, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, we see what he sees and what we see. Verse number 27. It says, wherefore, wherefore, because of what we've just read, because of what Jesus did, because what Jesus just said, we see the bread. We see the cup. Verse number 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He talks about the elements, the body, the, the cup, the, the bread. He talks about these things, what they represent, what they're symbolic of. You can see this little bitty wafer and this juice might not seem like a lot, but it's symbolic of something great, symbolic of something big. We're reminded of the broken body of Jesus. We're reminding of Jesus and how he took the cat of nine tails and how it came across his back and it whipped down on him over and over and beat him and how he was scourged and how the Jewish law, 39 stripes, they weren't allowed to have more than that. But see, Romans could beat somebody as long as they wanted. They had no law. They could beat someone within an inch of their life and bring them back. They took that crown of thorns where some of those thorns were up to three inches long. And do you think for a minute that they gently, lovingly placed that crown of thorns on Jesus' head? No. Their whole purpose was to inflict as much humiliation and torture on a human body as possible. They took that crown and they beat his head. They Push that thorns, those thorns into the skull of our Savior. When we look at the body of Jesus, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14 that his visage was so marred more than any man, he would not even look human. And Jesus went to the cross and went through that for you and for me. That's why he came. That's why he suffered. That's why he died. But yet we come into a service like this and we say, man, it's just a little piece of bread, pastor. It's just a little grape juice. But oh man, it represents so much more than that. Do you see the suffering Savior? Do you see what he went through? See, when we talk about how that, that visage was marred, that's what sin does to us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane. That's us. That's who the law was made for, to show us our great need. That's why he came. We look at our lives and say, well, pastor, I'm not that bad. And God looks at us and says, but you're not that good. Because Romans chapter 3 Verse 10 and 11 says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. We don't want salvation on our own. We have to be convinced that we need salvation on our own. We have to see the suffering Savior and the fact that he died to pay for what we had done, not what he had done. 
Paul Tripp said, sin plays havoc with our spiritual vision. Although we're able to see the sin of others with specificity and clarity, we tend to be blind to our own. And the most dangerous aspect of this already dangerous condition is that spiritually blind people tend to be blind to their blindness. We don't realize that we have a need. When was the last time you looked at the cross of Jesus and saw that your sin put Jesus there? That my sin put Jesus there? He wasn't there because he had a problem. He was there because we had a problem. His body broken, blood was shed for us. Do you see that? Can you picture him? But then not only can we see him, number two, we see what we say. It says twice, Paul mentions verse 27, Whosoever shall eat this bread, drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Unworthily. Then again in verse number 29, it says the same word, unworthily again. That's talking about a self-examination. It's talking about when I look at where I am and say, I'm fine. I'm not coming before his table ready to partake. I'm coming before unworthily. When I look at the cross, it should point me to my need and say, man, I need Jesus. I need to humble myself. I need my sin to be gone, eradicated. That's what happens when I sin. I'm choosing to satisfy my flesh rather than coming to the Savior. That's what it is. Sin is exciting, alluring, enticing. But the end result is not what I want. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. When I say and I come before the Lord's table unworthily, I'm saying I'd rather be dirty than be clean. I'd rather have my sin than have the Savior. I'd rather have where I am right now than where He desires for me to be. That's what I'm saying. And Paul isn't saying you have to be worthy to partake. That's never going to happen. But Paul is saying we should partake in a worthy manner. We have to look at this not as a light thing, not as a little thing, but as a major thing. Jim Eliff said, confession means to agree with God on his assessment of our actions and thoughts and to name our sin to God. We name our sin. We don't come before the Lord and say, man, God, aren't you lucky to have me? Aren't you lucky to have me as your child? No, we come before God's presence and say, God, I don't even understand why you would want to be near me. Why you would want to save me. Why you would want to love me. What you saw in me that would send your son to the cross. How should you and I feel about our sin? We should despise our sin. We should look at our sin the way he looks at sin. What put his own son on the cross. I used several weeks ago, used this illustration. The fact that if you and I, our children, maybe your son, your daughter, your grandchild, were killed by a drunk driver in a car accident, you would have a totally different vantage point on alcohol from that point forward you would look at it and despise it because that one thing ended the life of someone very precious to you how do you think God feels about our sin when our sin is what put Jesus on the cross that's why he hates sin because of what it did to his son the fact that he looked at his son and 
Because of our sin, he could no longer look at his son. That fellowship was broken on the cross. The fellowship that had never been broken in the history of the world. And all of eternity had never been broken. And for those several hours on the cross, the fellowship between God and God was severed because of us. That's why when we look at our sin and we say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. Or nobody knows about it. Or I'm just going to keep doing it and I'm going to confess it, but I'm not going to repent of it. That's why it's so damning in our lives. That's why Paul says you're unworthy. You're doing this in an unworthy manner. He talked about the history, he talked about the holiness, and then lastly, this morning, he talks about the heaviness. Verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. It wasn't the fact that they were eating while excluding others. It was the fact that they had diminished the value that Jesus' death on the cross represented. That's why it's such a big thing. He said in verse 27, to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. To be guilty, to partake without Preparation is to invoke and invite the wrath of God on our lives. That wrath of God that took place at the cross, I'm inviting it into my life when I'm not preparing. Two things that Paul shares with them. Number one, he shares with them the death sentence. The death sentence. It's not uncommon to have sick people in church. It's not uncommon to experience death in church. Not in church but to experience death in our church family. That's not uncommon. Those are fairly normal things. We don't wish for them to happen, but it happens. But the reasoning here in Corinth was uncommon. It says in verse number 30, for this cause, when you partake unworthily, when you don't examine yourself, when you're not prepared for what you're doing, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you. Think about as this letter is being read and people are emaciated over here and people are coughing over here and people are not doing well over here. And as this is being read for this cause, you think that changed the tone of the service that day? As they're looking around seeing people who are sick. And then Paul said, and many sleep. Some of those people who have died recently are dead because they were not prepared to partake. That's the heaviness of what we're getting ready to partake in this morning. The death sentence. God sees this as such a significant act that he ended life because people were not doing it in the right way. That's how serious this is. So before we pop the top here on our little wafer and drink our juice, let us be reminded of the fact that some people who did this the wrong way died because of it. Some people who did this the wrong way are sick because of it, or weak because of it. That's why Paul said, verse 32, but when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. The goal isn't to be perfect. The goal is to be prepared, prepared to partake, to take time to confess our sin, knowing that we have a God who loves us and stands ready to forgive us. 1 John 1, 9 but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants us to be clean. But do we look at sin the way that He looks at sin? There was a death sentence. 
But then verse 31, lastly, there was a divine scapegoat. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Spurgeon said, when we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. Do we see our sin the same way God does? Do we look at this as a very significant act? When we're saved, God deals with us as children. When I see that something is not right, I have a responsibility to correct it. Because if I don't bother, he will correct it for me. Did you ever have parents, maybe when you were growing up, and you knew something wasn't right? But rather than fixing it yourself, you waited until mom and dad found out and then they fixed it. How many of you remember that when they fixed it, the consequences were far worse than if you would have just fixed it yourself? Hey, I know I have a need. I know what needs to be done. So I'm going to take care of it so God doesn't have to do it. That's what we're talking about. If you search your own heart and you know that there's sin there and you know that there's a problem, you need to deal with it before God does. Because when we come before His table in His presence, without examination, there is a consequence. He said in verse number 26, let a man examine himself. Examine yourself. Paul would later say, let a man examine yourself that you be in the faith. Do you know, number one, that you're saved? Do you know that you've been cleansed? Do you know that your life's been changed? Is that justification taking place? Is that process of sanctification ongoing? If it's not, that's the first step. The first step is not to partake. The first step is to be clean. But then once you are clean, the next step is to partake in a worthy manner. When we look at our life today, all he's ever wanted is our hearts to be right. The relationship to be correct. The relationship to be restored. That's what he wanted in the Garden of Eden. That's what he wants with us. But is that what we want? This morning, before we partake in the Lord's table, do you want that close relationship with him? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not even saved. You don't have a time in your life when you can point to and say, Man, I, I remember that time when Jesus made himself real to me. When I got saved. When I asked him to forgive me my sin. When he became my Savior. Do you remember that time? Because if you don't remember that time, that's the first step. But if you do have a knowledge of that time, are you clean? Are you living in a place where if he returned or he looked and he examined your life, you would say, hey, there's nothing to find because I know I'm clean. That's what we talk about today. Let a man examine himself. Are you ready to be prepared? Are you ready to be clean? Are you clean? Do you want what he wants? And that is a right relationship with his children. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let me ask you just two questions this morning. Number one. Do you know that you have had a time in your life where you've trusted Jesus as your personal Savior? Do you know that? In a room this size, most likely, the majority of people in this room know. They have that settled in their own heart and life. But again, with a room this size and this many people, it's very likely that there may be someone here who doesn't know that. You don't know that Jesus is your Savior. You don't know there's been a time in your life where Jesus has been made real to you, where you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior. So let me ask you this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you or point you out or come send somebody to talk to you, but I would like to pray for you. Are you here this morning? You say, Pastor, 
I don't know there's been a time in my life where I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. I don't know what that's like. I don't know that that process of justification where I'm cleansed first and foremost has ever taken place in my life. I don't have that knowledge, that memory that I'm saved. Is that you today? I don't want to embarrass you, but I do want to pray for you. Would you simply, while no one's looking around, in the quietness of the moment, just me, you and the Lord, because God already knows our heart's condition. Maybe here this morning and say, Pastor, hey, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Would you simply slip up your hand long enough for me to see it so I know who I'm praying for today? Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved this morning. I just don't know. I don't have that settled in my heart. Please pray for me. Is that you? I would like to pray for you today. Not going to embarrass you. Wouldn't call your name if I knew it. But I would like to pray for you. Pastor, please pray for me. That's me you're talking about. I'm just not sure. I'm not convinced. Thank you for your honesty. You can put your hand down. Maybe somebody else, you had not raised your hand yet, but you'll raise it now, Pastor. You're talking to me this morning. I don't know. I don't have that settled. I don't have that confidence that you're talking about. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Whatever that looks like, whatever the wording is for you, is everything okay between your heart and Jesus? Pastor, I haven't raised my hand yet, but I'll raise it right now. Please pray for me. Please pray for me. Is that you? Is that you? I don't want to miss you, but I do want to pray for you. Pastor, pray for me. Salvation is so simple. It's not rocket science. Jesus died on the cross. He did all the work. All that's necessary to be saved is simply an acknowledging that you are what the Bible says. You're a sinner. And hey, that's all of us. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. But it's also believing that what Jesus did on the cross paid for your sin. And that by simply asking him to forgive you and cleanse you, you will be saved. That's salvation. That's all it is. It is truly that simple. It's God's word, and it's taking him at his word. And maybe here this morning, while no one's looking around, with your head bowed right there in your seat, you would simply tell the Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know if I stay the way that I am, because of my sin, that I deserve to be separated from you. But then thank Him for sending Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. And ask Him to save you. Ask Him to forgive you. That's what salvation is. And if you're not saved this morning, that is your greatest need. You're responsible with the information that you have. And I hope that you'll trust Christ as your Savior today. For the rest of us, are you clean today? Are you examining yourself? Have you taken an opportunity to open the closet doors, get the broom out, sweep out all the junk that's been there for a while that needs to be gotten rid of? Is there some secret sin that you're holding on to that nobody knows about, but God does? Are you clean today? I would caution you, if you're not clean this morning, hey, don't go down the road. Number one, get right. But if you refuse, hey, don't partake. Don't partake unworthily. Examine yourself. The altar's already open if you want to come and pray. You want to pray right there in your seat. Personal workers are around the room. would love to pray with you if you need that. But do what God wants you to do this morning as we examine ourselves team's going to sing in just a minute. We're not going to sing together collectively. We want you to have that time to pray. 
We're just going to sing like a verse in a chorus, give you opportunity to pray, and then we're going to go in our communion portion of the service. But talk to the Lord this morning. Make sure that you are clean today. Father, please bless our time. Help us to be prepared for what we are getting ready to participate in. We love you. Thank you for sending your son to die for us and the suffering that you endured on our behalf. Help us to acknowledge that, but then, Lord, help us to partake worthily because we are clean in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not going to ask you to be to stand. We're going to sit right there. If you need to pray, you pray. Pastor Tim, come lead us in verse and the chorus of that song we sang this morning, Heart of Worship. Let's have a time where we examine our hearts this morning. If you need to pray, pray right there your seat. Altar's open.